At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. my absolute honor to stand before you this morning, proclaiming the Word of God as is written and preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. May the Lord this morning convict our hearts with it and stir our souls towards Christ. Welcome to the last sermon of 1 Corinthians. We're so excited to be here this morning. We've spent the last 40 three sermons walking through this letter, traveling through it uh, from Paul. This is a letter to the Corinthian church. It is one of love and concern for a church that he planted some three or four years prior uh, to this letter being written. Now he is in Ephesus. And upon hearing of the uh, troubles through this letter delivered to him, Paul writes his response to a divided church, lacking in maturity of which he would have hoped for them. This letter is what we now hold as 1 Corinthians. This was a church heavily influenced by the surrounding culture of a major metropolitan city, and this confronted the Corinthians with a dilemma which we ourselves understand today. How do we live in the world without being conformed to it. In many ways, this church was headed for disaster. It had become a place of strife and dissension. It was a place of overt sin and paganism. It was a prideful place where the rankings in the church were due to wealth and dress and even the appearance of spiritual gifts. Upon receiving this correspondence from the Corinthian church, Paul must have been thinking, how have they veered so far off course? And to that, he responded to them with a sharp letter of love and criticism. Let's go all the way back 43 weeks ago and kind of march forward to get to today through this letter just as a way of reminder. Remember, Paul addressed the divisions in the church. There were factions that were forming through the church behind leaders, almost many denominations in the church. Remember, remember some said, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. No, I follow Christ. There were divisions and cracks that were forming, and people were uh, working against each other instead of with each other in the church. To this, Paul said, no, 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 I planted And Apollos watered, but it is God that gives the growth. He also discussed the moral and ethical problems that were within the Corinthian church. Remember, there was rampant sin, even that would embarrass a pagan that was going on in this church. And they were not walking out Matthew 18. No, it was there and everyone knew about it. No one was doing anything about it. Such immorality, Paul said, was like leaven that would leaven the whole loaf. Thus, it must be discarded, put out of the church. Also, they were taking one another to court. 
Christians were suing Christians within the context of the church. And Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong for just in taking another to court, you are already losing, weakening the bonds within the church. Paul also cleared up questions about marriage and singleness and divorce. Remember, Paul takes the pride from both sides when he says, it's great to be single. I support it. Yet it's also just as good to be married. Neither is morally superior to the other. He spoke about food offered to idols. He said, no food or food will not commend you to God. We are no worse if we eat this food or if we don't eat this food. It's a matter of wisdom or conscience. Yet, be mindful of the weaker brother. If you will lead him into sin, then you should abstain. Paul instructed on head coverings. These are a sign of submission. Wives should submit to their husbands just as husbands submit to Christ. He instructed them on the Lord's Supper. Remember, they were coming to Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper and having lavish parties, getting drunk before the rest of the people could take communion, being full with, when others went hungry. He reminded them that this is a remembrance of what Christ did for them as he broke his body and shed his blood for them on the cross. Paul at length discussed spiritual gifts. Multiple chapters he discussed spiritual gifts. I'm going to sum it up in one sentence. Pray for them, but utilize them under the authority of the church and in a way that is mindful to the outsider. Kirk, that was like 10 weeks right there. Paul advised an orderly worship. He said, the church service must be of the building up of those who hear, not a raucous free-for-all for those who would cause disorder. Last, he recentered them on the resurrection. Listen to this. Paul raises the resurrection of Christ as the central pillar of our Christianity, without which we would have any hope and above all be pitied among all people. So that's traveling all these chapters to get us to chapter 16. And here we are today as a dad heading off to work. Paul was giving his children a to-do list. For while he's away, have you been in that scene before? Maybe it was your mom or your dad or maybe your boss or maybe it was you uh, telling the children what to do. It maybe sounded like this. Uh, okay, dear, uh, when I'm gone, I need you to feed the dog. Remember, he gets one cup of food and he takes the big pill. Uh, be nice to your sister and help her to clean the living room. Um, I, I'll be back uh, after work. I may have to stop by the grocery store. If you don't do what I'm gonna, telling you to do, you're going to be in trouble. I love you. Goodbye. That, that, that's kind of like this ending section of, uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 right here. Uh, in these moments, you or Paul are recapping what is really important and must be remembered and giving some type of timetable for your return. You are reminding the hearer of what is expected of them in your absence and maybe even your warning of the consequences of disobedience. This is exactly what we find in the text today. Paul spent multiple chapters on some subjects like spiritual gifts, teasing out the intricacies and the nuances, reasoning through multiple scenarios, and giving biblical support to his words. This text today is the complete opposite. It reads more like a passage from Proverbs than something of the meat of the middle of an epistle of the Apostle Paul. 
It seems like every two to three verses today changes to a new topic and are not linear in reason or even building upon one another to make a compelling argument. They are a to-do list given by Paul to a church that he loves with his whole heart that is in need of something constructive to do. So my goal today is to talk about each of these to-dos to connect them with the church in Corinth and to give application to the church in Fayetteville. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It'll be a little jerky as we push the clutch, grab a gear, and head on to a new path between the topics. But by God's grace, we at GCC will be blessed if we heed the words that Paul has for us today because we are not created to sit idle by while waiting for the return of our king. No. Listen to this. The church must get to work doing the work that Christ has prepared us to do. Paul says in Ephesians that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. We have much to do, church. So let's dive in. Let's look at verse 12. He says this, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not his will at all to come. He will come when he has opportunity. So before Paul jumps into his first to-do, he's actually addressing one last question that the Corinthians would have had for him. Hey, hey, can you send Apollos to us and, and send him soon? And maybe even purposefully, he was saving it to the last. It seems that in the letters that the Corinthians sent, they were yearning for this leader, again, who they had elevated to a high status and desired his return. And why wouldn't they? Acts chapter 18 says that Apollos was an eloquent man, mighty in scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord and fervent in the spirit. And Paul had actually mentioned him a few times in this letter. Remember in chapter 1, when there was divisions in the church and they were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, right? We remember that. Paul speaks out about this in a scathing rebuke in chapter 3 about the divisions of the church. Um, Later in chapter 4, he reminds the church that they have had many guides in Christ, but not many father. Paul calls himself their spiritual father. And so maybe recognizing their fickle state, Apollos could have also stood in that father-type role to them to protect them from the lure of the culture and to lead them to the rock that is Christ and to his gospel that is hope. But Apollos will not return to them right now. It is not their will. Though Paul, who labored alongside of Apollos, urged him to go, he says he will not come unless he has opportunity It doesn't say why or when or even if ever Apollos will return, but just that this is not the time and this is not the place. God is calling him to stay and not to go. Okay, okay, again, we're grabbing a gear, we're shifting. Now Paul is going to jump into the to-dos. The first to-do is directed specifically to men. I know this because it says, act like men. The Bible is not calling women to act like men. Just in the same way, he's not calling men to act like women. The Bible is clear on gender. 
God made them male and female. This means God made you either a male or a female. God assigns gender as well as gender roles between men and women. So if you'll do me a favor, this isn't done very often, but men, if you would please stand up. Stand up to your feet, please. Paul is speaking directly to you. Listen up. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith and act like men. You may sit down. The church in Corinth was none of these things. They were not being watchful of the culture whose practices were creeping into the church. They were not standing firm in the faith as pride was rampant in the church and sin and likely every category was spreading like wildfire and the boys were in charge, not men, not strong men. Thus the church was in peril and Paul was calling them to task. You see, biblical manhood requires us to be there to lead, to stand in the gap. A real man is a man who is working in his church, advancing the gospel in every relationship that he has and standing for the Lord in his work and bringing the gospel to bear in his home. Paul is calling the leaders of the church in Corinth to do something, to act, to act like men. Listen to this. To be a man is to be held responsible Male headship or male leadership does not mean that I am more equipped to lead, smarter or more resourceful or more competent than a woman in any given area. And it definitely does not mean that I am more important. Male headship does mean that we are responsible to God for what he has given, whether the church, the family, or at work. Men, you are responsible for this church. You are responsible for your family and you are responsible for your work. It's like this. If Jesus were to come to your front door, knock on it, because there's a sin issue in your home, whether you, your wife, or your kids, you would not push forward your wife out the door and say, no, 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 Jesus, I know you're wanting or asking for me, but this is her problem. You talk to her. Maybe a boy would do that. Maybe a 30-something adolescent would do that but not a man, not a real man. And it's like this, if Jesus came to Gospel Community Church to call it to account, who would he ask for? He would ask for Kirk and myself. He would ask for the elders of the church. Is that because we are better at writing children's curriculum than our children's director, Erica Robinson? No. Is it because we're better prayer warriors than Miss Pat Reed? No. It is because... We are the men of this church and we are standing in front and we are responsible for her. We are the elders. We take responsibility for the church and behind us must be other men willing to take responsibility and lay down their lives for this church. Men, you must get to work doing the work in the church that Christ has prepared you to do. And too often the culture lulls us into sleep with entertainment and pacifies us with games that give us a mission and a purpose. But listen, the work is here. The mission is life or death, and the purpose is to share the gospel of Christ with our wives and our kids and our neighbors and our co-workers and be doing something in a manner that recognizes that the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Men, go home and put your games away. 
Man, your home is your mission field. Look, look right now, look around the room at the children in this room. The harvest is plenty. Man, is your home a kingdom where you are served and lulled to sleep? Or is it your mission field where you serve your wife and your children and sacrifice all that you have for their maturity in Christ? Men, your church is your mission field. It must be worked at. If you are coming here week in and week out to be fed, yet you are not feeding others, there is a problem. Yes, we want to feed you, but the gospel does not terminate on you. You are to be spreading it, leading others to it, serving in the church so that you can show it to others. There is much work to do here. You must be getting involved. Men, your work is your mission field. Be cultivating in your workplace opportunities to share the gospel. You're there eight hours a day for a reason. Get to know the people you work with and be a blessing to them. And also, and this relates specifically to me, own your work and don't let it own you. Listen to this. When you're at work, you be the hardest working man there. You bust your rump for the time that you were there, and then you get home, and you bust your rump there. Because your second shift is more important. Paul's first to do is to be watchful. Like an infantryman who stays awake to watch the perimeter of the camp, we are to, number one, recognize that the enemy wants to destroy you. Satan doesn't need to kill you or scare you. That's for movies. That's, that's just in the movies. His aim is to render you worthless by giving you the desires of your mind and your flesh. He wants to make you useless by busying your mind with sex and power and greed and ambition, all while leading you down a road to destruction. So watch these places in your lives, men. This is where he will attack. Number two, Realize that doing nothing is not an option. If you are not moving toward Christ in your daily pursuits, you are falling backwards. There is no standing still. The conveyor belt is moving in the opposite direction and there is nothing that you can do to stop it except running towards Jesus. So if you are not filling your mind with God's word, your mind will be filled with the things of the world. If you are not praying to God to help you through the day, you will be relying on yourself to get you through what only God can get you through. Do you see what I'm saying? Pursuing Christ is an active pursuit forward. Not because, not because He is moving away, but because if we stop, we will move backwards. Number three, actively scan the horizon for attack. Satan is crafty. Notice he doesn't seduce you with too much at one time. He gives you a little and then a little more and then a little more until you're all the way in. Be on the lookout for his schemes. Men, he attacks your eyes. Guard your eyes. He attacks your pride. Guard your pride. He attacks your sense of mission and duty, and it's not found on a screen or battle with controllers, but rather in the church and in your home. Watch over your home for what comes through the internet and the TV. 
What are the lies that are being fed to you and your wife and your children in your home through those devices? The encouraging words of a concerned husband or father can be a hedge of protection around the home. Also, men, watch over your church. Hold Kirk and I accountable for what we preach. You are the safety net that may one day save this church, lest we fall. And keep your eyes tuned to the winds of falsehood that can blow through a church and be prepared to defend the faith. Next on the to-do list is to stand firm. Upon attack, criticism, or charge, stand firm. Stand with your feet planted firmly upon the Word of God. If I have personally learned anything over the past 12 months, it's this. If I can find it. (laughs) That's why I'm not supposed to look away. Um, Yep, it's this. um, Is that leaders are always questioned. They're always questioned and are never right in the eyes of everyone. We as church leaders have had to make hard and controversial decisions that some of you have liked and some of you have hated. It can be hard for us for well-thought-out and prayed-over decisions that, uh, to, to be either disliked or, 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 not, or not observed. But leaders, especially godly leaders, should not be tossed to and fro by the winds of public sentiment or especially not the culture, but we must stand firm in our biblical convictions. Men, stand firm doesn't mean you're always right. It doesn't mean that you never change your mind. Uh, It does mean, however, stand firm in right doctrine and right belief and make wholly sure that those are what are leading your choices and not the things of the world. The next to do is to act like men. Be strong. So since I've already gone on my rant about this, I just want to summarize it uh, right now. Number one, to act like a man is to protect. We are guardians and protectors of our home and of our church. That means physically. As we protect the doors of our home and as we protect the doors of our church against attack, But that also means spiritually as we are on watch for lies that are invading our home and lies that are invading our church. And we are on guard spiritually in the same way. Men, you are the front line defense for the women of this church and the women in your home. Be on guard and protect. Number two is uh, uh, when we act like a man, we provide. That doesn't mean you have to make the most money but it does mean you are responsible for the money in your home. What that specifically means is if somebody's getting a second job, it's you. If somebody's getting a third job, it's you. You are responsible, not your wife. It's not her responsibility. The buck stops with you. Number two, in that same category, that means to the tithe in the church. You are responsible for making sure that your family is tithing to the church. You are responsible to make, for making sure that the church finances are in order. You are responsible. Not your wife. Don't put that on her. It's your responsibility that your household and the church be in financial order. 
Number three, lead. You are to guide with vision and you are to direct the course. Men, that again doesn't mean that you push your wife out of the way. She's smarter than you. What it does mean, what it does mean is that you are setting the course forward and you are making sure that your home ship and the church ship are heading in that direction. Also, number four is serve. We as men in the home and in the church are servant leaders. What that means is we lead, but we lead through service. What that can mean in your home is that you need to learn how to pick up a broom. You need to learn how to get the children in order and be able to put them down to bed so mom can take a breather. Okay, that doesn't mean that mom does everything and the man puts up his feet. What it does mean is you make sure that you are leading your home in service. And that ties directly into the last one, sacrifice. That means oftentimes you're laying down your wants and maybe even sometimes your needs for the needs of your home, for the needs of your lady, for the needs of your children. You're putting off what you want to buy because they need shoes or clothes or whatever. Men, you must sacrifice for your family and lead in service while being mindful that all that we do is done in love. That's verse 14. We're moving ahead now. Verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Now, wait just a minute. Wait, Paul. It seems like you're backpedaling, right? Because your first to-dos were like you were sending marching orders to the troops saying, okay, go get them, go kill them, go, go, go conquer all for Christ. And now you're saying, and here's your weapon, love. <laughs> On the surface, it seems that you're disarming a man by limiting him to love. Yet, how can we lead in a Christ-like manner if we do not do so in love? Jesus the manliest man that there ever was, led in love. Love poured out of him as he led a life that was sinless and wholly obedient to God. He poured out love as he died on a cross in your place and for your sins. He poured out love as he rose again and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, and he will pour out love one more time when he returns to make all things new. And it is this love that calls us to love. John sums it up this way in 1 John 4, 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. That's a tongue twister. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. Look at this. It says, the church must get to work showing the love that Christ modeled for us. That said, when we act like men, we are to be bold and courageous for Christ. We should not be drawn into aggression or self-assertion, but rather to model Christ's love for the church one by which he gave up himself. You see, in a prideful church, men act in a prideful way. Their decisions benefit themselves and their deeds place them in a place of praise. A prideful church is a weak church run by weak men. This is the Corinthian church as it is split into factions and battle for dominance as people using spiritual gifts as a sort of holy, unholy one-upsmanship 
and where sin is rampant in the church and nobody says a word. The opposite, in fact, is, is what Paul is calling the church to, is to a church that is filled with strong men who sacrifice in love. This church has leaders who pour out the love that has been poured into them by Christ. It's a safe place to confess sin, to repent, where godly believers pick you up and support you with brotherly accountability. It's a church where deeds are done not to build up oneself, but to hold up the name of Christ and show Him as more worthy than our stuff or our possessions. Paul is calling for a church that practices the one another's. Love one another. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. And to do this, you must be involved with one another and love one another. Are you today involved in the life of the church in such a way where you know the needs of others and they know yours? That's called community group. Do you take occasion to pray for the brothers and sisters here at Gospel Community Church? Strong men pray for other men. Strong women pray for other women. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Now let's move ahead in verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers. You know the household of Stephanus, where the first converts of in Achaia, and that they were devoted that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Uh, now another to-do. Did you see it in the text? Paul is urging the Corinthians to do something, and it seems very important, right? Is he urging them? Paul uses a very strong tone to start off. He is urging them. You urge people uh, too, don't you? You urge your child to study lest they slip in their schooling. You urge your spouse to eat healthy and to exercise lest he succumb to heart disease and to type 2 diabetes. You urge the lost to accept Christ lest they spend eternity away from him in hell. We urge because we want those we love to step away from a path that leads to destruction. So Paul is urging them to, well, let's first set the scene as Paul did. He, he, he's urging them, he's going to set the scene. He says, you remember Stephanus, right? And, and his people, um, he baptized the household of Stephanus. He said so in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And they were now leaders in the church in Corinth who had devoted themselves to the service of the saints, meaning he was a leader in the church, possibly a pastor or an elder in uh, the church. They were strong and they acted like men. These guys had traveled from, uh, to Ephesus from uh, Corinth. That's who brought Paul the letter from Corinth and was going to bring it back uh, to bring comfort to Paul as well as bring the report and the letter uh, to, from Corinth to him. And he's now sending back this letter. Okay, okay, now that you remember that, let's, let's get back to what he's urging. Paul is urging the Corinthians to be subject to the leaders in your church. Leaders who are strong men who lead with love. Be subject, by the way, means place yourself below, right? Whoa, that's not American. Well, whoa, that's very Christian. 
This, from, this is from a Christ who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. He emptied himself. Jesus subjected himself to God the Father when he placed aside his crown and humbled himself in human form, being obedient unto death. And in his ministry here on earth, Jesus placed himself below his disciples. Remember the washing of the feet? Uh, he placed himself below the disciples as a model to us. The name above all names, Jesus Christ, was the ultimate servant leader, subjecting himself to those he led. We as Christ followers must subject ourselves to the leaders in the church and to one another. This is because humility is the antidote for pride. Paul is asking a prideful church in Corinth to humble themselves, to be like these humble leaders who have taken on the humbling task of service to the saints. And he is instructing us to do the same. How can the proud stand before a humble Christ? We are all leveled before the foot of the cross and its power of the gospel that raises us up. Therefore, we must not place ourselves above one another, but below. As leaders lead in the church, the call is to subject yourselves to them. As ministry heads ask for volunteers, the call is to subject yourself to them and volunteer in the kids' ministry, right? We, we are called to humble ourselves, to subject ourselves, to place ourselves under. And one last one, I'm just going to slip in here. Kirk talked about it last, year, last week. If the leaders of the church are calling you to tithe or to give to a church building campaign, we'll talk about that later, then we are to subject ourselves to our comfort, to our finances, to our wants, and be obedient just as Christ has modeled for us. Okay, we're getting close. Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. As he draws to a close, Paul sends love from Asia. The letter uh, that he's writing was written from the Roman province of Asia, which is he's in the city of Ephesus, which was about a three-day voyage across the Aegean Sea from Corinth. There working with him were uh, Aquila and Prisca in the book of Acts. Luke referred to her as Priscilla and actually put her first, Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers by trade. And remember when uh, Paul came to Corinth and met them, he started working with them in their business so that he could earn money, not taking money from the Corinthians, earn money while he preached the gospel in Corinth. Now Priscilla and Aquila have moved over to uh, Ephesus uh, to help begin that church as well. And they, because they are tied to the Corinthians as a forever family, are sending their love like distant siblings would call on the phone and say, hey, how are you doing? I love you. I miss you. They're sending their love. Same with all of the church of Ephesus. They're sending their love. We love you. We are inextricably tied to you as a forever family. We love you. Not to mention, Paul would have read this letter and surely talked to his friends, Aquila 
and Priscilla and maybe some other leaders in the Ephesians church saying, where have they gone wrong? How can I love them? How can I encourage them? And them in Ephesus, knowing the difficulties of ministry, would have more than likely ministered to Paul as he ministered to the Corinthian church. A chain of love. So his final to do is this, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is a common encouragement of Paul. He writes it in many letters. It is a kiss of friendship, moreover a kiss of brotherhood that united the Christian forever family. The church in Corinth could use some unity, right? Factions and divisions had torn apart the church and tears apart churches, but unity bonds them together. This may be repulsive to us today. I know I even watch TV and I'm like, oh, they're touching each other. You know, so like, oh, they're they're kissing each other with a mask on. This was a cultural thing that went on now. But what it definitely means to us is it's a spiritual bond between us and another person. And that bond is stronger than any social, political or racial group that we belong to otherwise. We are Christ's church, His children, and we are one. All right, we're getting towards the end, verse 21 through 24. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Finally, like a pastor who says he's done only to say more, one more thing, Paul picks up the pen from his writer. See, the, 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 the letter Paul had been dictating to a writer who was writing it for him. Now he takes that pen, puts it to paper, and these are the very words of Paul written by the very hand of Paul through the inspiration of the Lord. Verse 22, he says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So who is Paul talking to? Why is he talking so sharply? He is talking to the Christian posers in the church. Paul is calling out those in the church who have fallen away or were never in the faith. These most likely are the ones causing the divisions and the creating the factions. They are the ones who are using religious displays for self-promotion. They are using the Lord's Supper as a dinner party. He is talking to those in the church who are destroying the church. And he has said it earlier in his letter in in chapter 5. He said, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So he's just repeating this refrain This above all things is what Paul is urging the men to do, to be watchful for, watching for those who would destroy it from within. These men stand in the gap between the flock and those in the church who would devour it, those who would lead it astray, those who would fleece it for their own gain. Kirk and I, along with other men in this church, have stood in that gap. We have rebuked the false teacher. We have kicked out the false prophet. And we and men in this church have stood here in this very room protecting the flock, just as Paul is calling the leaders in Corinth to do. So my urge to you today 
is for you to men to step up with us and do the same. Paul says, Maranatha. Maranatha, our Lord come. Maranatha is, is, is an uh, um, Aramaic term for our Lord come. Paul's utmost desire was for the church, was for the return of Christ. He will return to purify the church. He will come to defeat the oppressive governing authorities. He will return to right all injustices. He will come to unite his children across the globe under his rule and his reign. John writes it this way, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from every eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. What a glorious day this will be when our king returns to rule and to reign, to rescue and to redeem Paul was looking always forward to it, and so should we. So as we go out from this building today, our mind must be fixed on the return of Christ. When we go back to work tomorrow, our minds must be fixed on the return of Christ. If it is, then that will guide our efforts for the day. If our minds are set on the return of Christ, our worldly pursuits lose their allure. And if our worldly pursuits lose their allure, we are far less tempted to waste our days and our nights chasing them. Therefore, we have more time to devote for preparing for his return because the church must get to work doing the work that prepares for Christ's return. How are you preparing for the return of the Lord? How are you ordering your life and your family and your home and your work in your marriage, in your kids, in your singleness, in your hurts, around the fact that Jesus will come again. Paul ends the letter with this expression of love. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. A blessing and an expression of love. That's how Paul ends his letter. No one can doubt Paul's love for this church. Neither can they doubt his concern for it. He poured out his life both spiritually and physically for them. He toiled over them with the gospel. And now he is bathing them in fatherly correction, in love that they would ultimately live in a manner worthy of the gospel. In doing so, he has given them a list, a to-do list, to guide them along that I believe will be helpful for us today. So just a manner of application. I just want to run through them again, one through three. One, be watchful men, stand firm, act like men, and be strong. Men, as you leave here today, you are empowered to lead in the spheres of influence that you have, whether in your home, in the church, at work, and everywhere you go. Be men who create men. Be men who lead other men. Be men who lead your home and your family by dying to yourself and raising them up. Men, that is our charge, lest we fall. Lest we fall. Number two, let all that you've done be in love. We've gotten this wrong for so many generations, men. 
leading but not in love. Leading as if it's our power that changes hearts, that changes minds, that changes our world. But we must be of this mind that's only Christ's love that does any of the changing. First, he must change your heart. He must change your heart that you are subject to him, that you are under his power and under his authority. That as you share the gospel, you share it from a reconciled heart because we are reconciled to be reconciled, reconcilers. We are reconciled in love. Number three, greet one another with a holy kiss. Not a real kiss. But unity within the church is the only thing that is going to sustain the church for generations to come. We have multiple generations represented here in this room right now. Factions, disagreements that run out of hand without humility and subjection. Those are the things that were going to sh- would shatter the heritage and the legacy that we're creating today. We must be about the unity of the church, the unity of the gospel, so that these children know a God who we know. They serve a God who we serve, and they're telling their children's and their children's children, and so on, until Christ's return. Last, and I do that mean that this time, in the spirit of Paul, I want to say, I love you. I love you. For the past 10 years, myself, my wife Lindsay, and my family, have, we have given our lives to the service of the saints. We have given our lives to building up this church, Many of you in here have had dinner at our house. Some of you here have sat on our couch and cried with us through marital counseling. Some of you even a long time ago sat in our child's room as we taught you how to swaddle your child, how to bathe and how to rub all the lotion all over your child to make sure they're squeaky clean and slippery. We, 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 we sat with many of you. We, we've celebrated victories and we've mourned losses but I love you. And I'm giving my life to the building up of this church. And I'm calling you men to do the same. Let's pray. Father God, nothing that I've said today can be done without you. Nothing can be done today without your spirit guiding us empowering us, leading us, and we must first be reconciled before we can be reconcilers. We must first be changed before we can be changed. We must first have hope before we can expect others to have hope. Lord, I pray for the men in this church that we would be devoted to you above all things, giving our lives away to you, that you would have your will done in us. And we know that your will is to use us for the building of the church, the building of our homes, and the advancement of your gospel. I pray for willingness of heart this morning as you convict the men in this room. I pray for them to give over their hurts, their hang-ups. I pray for them to give over uh, the dark corners of their lives to you, Lord, so that you can clean us, clean our hearts, purge our hearts, that we would be watchful, stand firm in the faith, 
and act like men who are pursuing you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.